Welcome everybody. Today we are so blessed to have um, Dr. Neil Barnard with us today. And uh, just like all of our other speakers, I think you guys are in for a real, really amazing treat. So uh, Dr. Barnard sits on our medical advisory board, our wellness advisory board here at Ruby, and he is hands down one of the greatest authorities on diabetes and diet, which is what he's going to be speaking about today. Um, he's a champion and leader in the field of clinical research and policy related to health and nutrition. Uh, he's a leading expert in our cooking diabetes lesson uh, in the wellness unit, for those of you who have not gotten to that point yet. Um, so you'll see his voice um, throughout it with a number of quotes and also some, some small videos. Also, Dr. Neil Barnard is the president of Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, uh, PCRM. You should definitely take a look at it. And an adjunct associate professor at the, uh, of medicine at the George Washington University School of Medicine. So... Uh, he has led tons of clinical trials investigating the effects on diet and health, and and as I said, he is just such a such an authority on the topic of of diabetes and health and just general nutrition and health. Um, uh, he has authored uh, dozens and dozens of scientific publications, and then also has has uh, well over a dozen uh, books as well out there. Um, I have had the pleasure of working with Neil on a number of events, and I absolutely love listening, listening to him speak. So uh, on that note, I will pass it on to Neil. We are so, so grateful to have him here. So um, give him a warm welcome, and Neil, over to you. To make sure that we're all on the same page, I'd like to start with talking about what diabetes is, and then I would like to present the research that we have been doing on this, and perhaps most importantly, talk about the cause of diabetes, so that when we're thinking about a dietary approach, we're not just trying to put a Band-Aid on diabetes, we're trying to directly attack the cause and see what we can do to reverse it. The good news is that food turns out to be more powerful than medications in many cases. All right, so let's start with what diabetes is. As you probably know, diabetes means there's too much sugar in the blood. Sugar is glucose. And glucose is not a bad thing. Glucose is a good thing. Uh, it's in the same way as gasoline powers the engine of your automobile, glucose powers your muscles, it powers your brain. Glucose is your fuel. The problem in diabetes is that the glucose isn't getting where it belongs. It's not getting into the muscles. It's staying outside in the blood and it builds up and we detect it on blood tests. You say a person has a high blood sugar, Instead, that sugar should be getting into their cells where it can do some good, okay? So, insulin is the hormone that escorts glucose into the muscles, into the liver, into the fat cells. And insulin is made in the pancreas. And the pancreas is a long organ right behind your belly button in your abdomen. And insulin is produced there. It goes to the muscle cells and to the liver cells and other parts of the body where it acts like a key to open the cell membrane to allow glucose to pass inside. Now, there are three main types of diabetes. Type 1 diabetes used to be called what? That's right, childhood onset diabetes. Uh, but uh, it really means that the cells of the pancreas that make insulin have died. And so you, you're going to have to have an exterior source of insulin, meaning insulin injections. Now, I'm mostly not going to talk about type 1, but I'll say a couple things just really quickly before we go away from it. The first is that we now know that even though a person with type 1 diabetes is going to continue to need insulin, if they follow the kind of healthy plant-based diet that I described, 
they can require much less insulin, and their likelihood of complications diminishes a lot too. So just because I'm going to focus mostly on type 2, type 1, uh, people with type 1 benefit from this as well. The second thing is we now have what looks like a way to dramatically reduce the risk of people developing type 1 diabetes. And that is to avoid dairy products, cow, cow milk products, early in life. The reason I say that is research has shown very clearly that people with type 1 diabetes have antibodies in their bloodstream. Those antibodies are like little torpedoes. They're destroying the insulin-producing cells. That's what type 1 diabetes is. Well, what causes those antibodies to form? We believe it's animal protein, and the biggest suspect is cow's milk. It's not the only suspect. Viruses can play a role, too. But substantial evidence says if kids are breastfed by mom and not drinking milk from another species, then those antibodies tend not to form, OK? So type 2 diabetes used to be called what? Adult onset diabetes. That's right. And in this case, the cells of the body are resisting insulin. So the pancreas makes more insulin to try to make up for it, but it just ends up not being able to keep up. That's by far the most common type. More than 90% of people with diabetes have type 2. And there's a third type, gestational diabetes. When does that occur? Well, it occurs during pregnancy, right? And when a person is no longer pregnant, it goes away, but it is a shot across your bow. If a woman develops gestational diabetes, she is very likely to develop type 2. So we treat it like type 2, and if all goes well, we can prevent type 2 from ever occurring. Okay, so let's say a person has, two type, has type 2 diabetes. What's the usual approach? Well, that you go to the doctor, and the doctor sends you down the hall to the dietician who says, well, you've got too much sugar in your blood, and that sugar comes from carbohydrate, like potatoes or bread. So be careful. Don't eat too much of those things and try to keep your carbohydrate intake steady from day to day. By the way, this is not what I am recommending, but I'm describing this as the usual approach now. Limiting carbohydrate does not stop diabetes, and it becomes uh, eventually just not enough. And the dietitian or doctor will also say cut calories so you can lose weight and add exercise, but that's not enough either. So at some point, the doctor adds metformin, which is the first-line medication, and then they add more medications, and eventually they say you need insulin, and then they tell you just to get used to the fact this is a progressive disease. To all of this, I want to say this is just not enough. This is not an adequate approach. So let's take a lesson from Japan. If people have been limiting carbohydrate, and they've been saying, gee, I don't want to have carbohydrate because that's going to produce sugar in my blood. Well, what's the dietary staple of Japan? They're eating rice, right? All day long, at least historically, people in Japan eat enormous amounts of rice. And yet, despite that very heavy carbohydrate load, if you look at adults over the age of 40, Prior to 1980, diabetes was rare. It was 1 to 5% of the population, very rare. Now, what happened in Japan in 1980? You know what happened in Japan? This happened. McDonald's arrived. And Burger King and KFC and Wendy's, fast food chains all invaded. 
And some people have said when you see the golden arches, you're on the road to the pearly gate. Well, that's been true in Japan. As these non-traditional Japanese foods invaded, the fat intake increased, fat content of the diet went up, carbohydrate went down, they were eating less rice, more meat, less rice, and the top line here is overweight. People started to develop weight problems. The bottom line is obesity. Not a lot of obesity yet, but much more in the way of weight problems. Okay, so prior to 1980, diabetes was rare. But by 1990, just 10 years later, diabetes was 11 to 12% of the population. This shows us, first of all, rice does not cause diabetes. Secondly, diabetes is not primarily genetic. Now, genes play a role, but genes did not change, did they, between 1980 and 1990? The environment changed, foods changed, and that's the big issue. Let's take a lesson from the United States. If you look at meat intake over the last century or so, it's gone way, way up. And you know what the big increase is? Is the increase in beef mainly? No. What, what, what is the kind of meat that's really increased? Chicken. Americans now eat more than a million chickens per hour. Now, let me say a special word of condemnation for cheese. We're not just boosting meat and chicken in particular, we're eating a lot more cheese than ever before. A century ago, back in 1909, the average American ate less than four pounds of cheese in a year. Well, starting in the 1960s and 70s, fast food chains brought in cheese as part of the sandwiches they were selling, burgers and so forth, and pizza came in and became quite a fad. And as you know, pizza is basically a delivery vehicle for cheese. So as of 2011, your average American was consuming just about 30 pounds more cheese compared with a century earlier. Sugar intake, different kinds of sugar are going in different directions. But the thing to, to know is the red line at the top of this slide is all the sweeteners put together. And as you can see, that red line is going up. Americans are eating more sweetener. So what happens if your average American is eating 75 pounds more meat every year, 30 pounds more cheese, and 30, 40, 50 pounds more sugar? What's going to happen? What's going to happen is we are going to see an obesity epidemic, which is exactly what we've seen. But not only that, we're going to see a diabetes epidemic. This is the U.S. map in 1994. The light-colored states had less than 4% of the population with diabetes. The darkest blue states down there, Louisiana and Mississippi, more than 6%. But that's 94. Look at 95 and 96 and 97 and 98 and 99 and 2000. Diabetes just came roaring in. And then in 2006, we needed new colors so we could track individual counties. But the map is still changing. Diabetes follows very rapidly when diets get worse and worse and worse. Now, who does better? Well, researchers have looked at different populations, and one that they have focused on especially is Seventh-day Adventists. Now, when I started my research career, I could not figure out why researchers are always putting Adventists under the microscope. Well, I figured it out. The reason is that Seventh-day Adventists are, by and large, non-smokers. They don't drink alcohol. They avoid caffeine. But some of them avoid meat, which the church says you're supposed to avoid meat. Some of them do that. And some of them do not. So it sets up a natural experiment of health-conscious people who vary in their diet habits. 
So in 2009, the American Diabetes Association published these data. They're, they divided a group of Seventh-day Adventists into five diet groups, and they looked at their body mass index, their BMI. You know about BMI, right? What's a healthy BMI? Okay, under 25. If you're over 25, we're going to say that's overweight. Well, the red band on the left, these were non-vegetarians, typical meat-eating Adventists, and their BMI was not in a healthy range. It was 28.8. The next group, semi-vegetarians. They ate meat, but only once a week or less. They were a little thinner. And then the pesco-vegetarians. Who are they? Well, pesco is fish, right? So they don't eat any meat other than fish. They're a little slimmer. And then the lacto-ovo-vegetarians. Lacto meaning milk, right? Ovo meaning eggs. So they're not eating any meat, but they're having milk and eggs. They're a little slimmer. And that group out on the right, vegans, a vegan is not a person from the planet, vegas. Uh, vegan diet just means no animal products, and that happens to be the only group where people, on average, are in the slim and healthy range. But the reason the American Diabetes Association published these data was because of what you're seeing now. Diabetes prevalence, very common in meat eaters, very rare in vegans, and the closer you get to having the animal products off your plate, the lower the likelihood you'll develop diabetes. So my research team said, all right, how about if we try this vegan diet and we give it to people who have never done anything like a vegan diet before? Let's see how it works. We brought in 64 women. They were all moderately to severely overweight, and everyone was after the age of menopause. We asked them to eat from the power plate, fruits, grains, legumes, and vegetables. By the way, what are legumes? Beans, right? Beans, peas, lentils, foods that come in a pod. And so we had two rules. In our weight control study, we asked people to go low fat. So we taught them non-fat cooking techniques. And we asked them to follow a totally vegan diet, no animal products at all. So low fat, no animal products. Those were the only rules. No calorie counting, no limits on portions, no exercise, nothing else, okay? It was a 14-week study. And a typical day's meals might be blueberry pancakes, maybe oatmeal with cinnamon and raisins, half a cantaloupe, or you could eat the whole cantaloupe if you wanted. We weren't counting calories at all. If they have rye toast, could they have butter on it? Well, no, because that's not vegan. But could they have jam on it? Sure. Okay, uh, you could have all the fruit you wanted for dinner, maybe lentil soup, or maybe linguine, but not linguine with an Alfredo sauce, but linguine with artichoke hearts or oyster mushrooms or chunky tomatoes, something like that. Very simple. All right. So a low-fat vegan diet. Uh, this was followed for 14 weeks, and your average person lost 13 pounds in 14 weeks. We tracked them for two additional years, and they sustained their weight loss. That was pretty impressive. So based on that, the National Institutes of Health gave our research team a grant and said, okay, put this diet to the test for type 2 diabetes. We brought in a large group of people, and we asked them to follow a low-fat vegan diet, and we compared it to a group of people following the ADA guidelines. That means the guidelines that, were, that the American Diabetes Association was using, which rely on cutting calories and limiting carbohydrates. It was a 22-week study with a one-year follow-up. Now, I want to share with you what we follow. There's a blood test that you might be familiar with called A1C. 
or hemoglobin A1C. And if I test your blood glucose, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down, and it will change from minute to minute. But hemoglobin A1C is a measure of your blood sugar that stays fairly constant over about a three-month period. For a person with diabetes, it ought to be below seven. And our people were not below seven. They were, at the beginning, they were around eight. Now, the red line here are the people on the ADA diet. And as you can see, they had a nice drop of about 0.6. The blue line are people on the vegan diet. They had a little bit better uh, reduction of about 0.1 points. Uh, those are both good. However, I have to tell you, that there's a big confounder on this slide. A lot of the people in the study needed to change their medicines. They were improving, so they got away from their medicines, and that is a confounder. So I want to show you this slide, but I'm going to modify it. Now I'm only showing you the people who kept their medicines the same, so we don't have that complicating element. And as you can see here, the red line is the people on the ADA diet. They had a drop of 0.4 points on their A1C. That means they're in better glucose control. That's good. But the blue line are the, is the vegan group. They had a drop of more than 1.2 absolute percentage points. That is huge. That's better than any oral diabetes medication. So that really made history in the world of diabetes. And are you familiar with bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterol? Well, it won't surprise you. It drops like a stone because if you're on a vegan diet, you're not eating cholesterol. Cholesterol is only in animal products for the most part, and you're not eating the animal fat that causes your body to make cholesterol. Now, I want to put a human face on this. This is Vance. Vance was a Washington policeman. His father was dead by age 30. Vance was 31 when he was diagnosed with diabetes, but he lost 60 pounds on a vegan diet. He stopped his diabetes medications, and his diabetes became no longer detectable. What I mean is, he was on no medicines, and his hemoglobin A1C was in the normal, healthy range. It had, for doctors in the audience, it had dropped from 9.5, which is terrible, to 5.3, which is totally normal. This is Nancy. Nancy went on the vegan diet, too. She lost 40 pounds in about a year's time. She stopped her diabetes medications. Her A1C improved dramatically, and her arthritis improved as well. And if you're interested in that, uh, many people with arthritis find that they do better when they get the animal products off their plate, especially dairy. But her hemoglobin A1C was 8.3 to start. It dropped to 6.8. Now that's not perfect, but it's a lot better than where she had been before. And to be able to do that while stopping her medications is remarkable. Okay, this is my most important slide. I want you to make sure that you pay attention to this because I'm gonna now show you the cause of type two diabetes. Okay, you see on the upper left there, you see the glucose molecules there. That glucose is supposed to get inside this cell. This blue blob is a muscle cell, and muscle cells are powered by glucose. But that glucose can't get in the cell, not without the help of insulin. And insulin is like a key. It attaches to that receptors, those little red receptors, and just like a key in a lock, it causes a mechanism to go, and that signals the glucose to pass in through those little purple channels. You with me? So the glucose, uh, the insulin key causes a mechanism to allow glucose inside. Here's the problem. You see those yellow blobs inside the cell. Those are yellow fat droplets. They're microscopic. You can't see them with your eye. 
They're inside the cell. But I can detect them with MR spectroscopy. And it's now clear that the more fat you have building up inside your cells, the more you're interfering with insulin's action. Now, fat in your cells, doctors hate words like fat. It has only one syllable. So we are going to refer to it as intramyocellular lipid. All that means is fat inside a muscle cell. Think of it. If I get home from work and I have my key in my door lock, but it doesn't open, well, what's the matter? I look inside the lock. While I was gone, the neighbor kids came over, and as a joke, they put chewing gum in my lock. So now it doesn't work. Well, you don't have chewing gum in your cells, but you do have fat building up inside your cells. Chicken fat, beef fat, cheese fat, even olive oil and fryer grease is building up in your cell, and that stops insulin from being able to do its job. Okay? All right, now I'd like to talk to you about your car insurance. Um, when I look out my window, um, right over there, I see Geico's national headquarters. Geico, as you know, is a major car insurance company. And they have 2,500 people working there. They're self-insured. And back in 2007, I was talking with the health director at Geico. And she said, wouldn't it be great if everybody at Geico was on a low-fat vegan diet? We would save a ton of money. Well, we decided to do just that. We presented a program at Geico that included two things. The first is healthy vegan food in the cafeteria. The second was a weekly class where anybody who wanted to go vegan would get some support and instruction and cooking lessons right there at work at lunchtime. Now, I want to tell you that there were a few missteps along the way. The chef in the uh, food service was a little bit new to what a vegan diet actually meant. You get this? Anyway. Took people a little while to figure out that a vegan burger should not be topped with bacon and cheese already. Anyway, we, we uh, used as a comparison site another Geico facility, this one in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And those people were at 220 pounds to start, and because they got no program, they were still 220 pounds when the study was over. But the people here lost weight very nicely, about 11 pounds between November and December in 2007. Here, here are Hillary and Bruce. They participated in the program. Uh, Bruce sent me these pictures from them before. And there they are after. Catch that. Hillary's lost 85 pounds. Bruce has lost 100 pounds. It really works wonderfully. So the power plate, that's the way to eat. Fruits, grains, legumes, vegetables. Don't obsess so much about how much you're eating. Do not worry about carbs. If you're eating healthy carbohydrate foods, healthy whole grains, healthy beans, healthy starchy vegetables, you can be like all the other populations like Japan and China and others that have eaten high diets that are rich in healthy carbohydrates. They don't gain weight. They're very slim. All right. So power plate is what we encourage people to eat. We sent this to the U.S. government. We sent this to the U.S. government in 2009. And I don't know if you saw that in 2011, the government adopted my plate, uh, which looks a lot like what we sent. Not exactly the same, but uh, some people have thought we've had some influence on the U.S. government. Okay, the last thing I'd like to talk about, and then maybe we can switch to questions, is how we present this to patients. Because some of you are involved in either coaching people or your physicians or dietitians. 
The first thing to remember is that protein is not an issue on a plant-based diet. It'll be a question that comes up all the time, but beans, vegetables, and grains provide more than enough protein. It's ne protein is never an issue. Um, calcium is an issue, but it's an easy one. Eat green leafy vegetables and beans, you'll get plenty of calcium. Vitamin B12 is something you need for healthy nerves and healthy blood, but B12 is not made by either animals or plants. It's made by bacteria. Now, there are bacteria uh, in the gut of a cow, and that produces B12 that gets into meat, and some people can absorb that B12 and some cannot. But if you're on a healthy vegan diet, which I recommend, you should be taking a B12 supplement. It's in every multiple vitamin you ever took, and it's also easy to find at any health food store. The amount you need is only 2.4 micrograms per day. All the supplements have more than that. It's not a, not a problem, but you don't want to miss it. Okay, so there are many advantages of a plant-based approach. It clearly reduces blood sugar in A1C. It causes easy weight loss. It knocks cholesterol down. You don't have to limit calories. You don't worry about portions. You don't worry about carbs. You don't count. You don't measure anything. Very, very easy. When we present this, we don't do it individually. We work as a group. So if somebody comes in with diabetes, we say, why don't you come in on Wednesdays? Every Wednesday at 6 o'clock, we have a group session. We'd like to have you join. It's free. And they come and we say, bring your family or bring your spouse or bring your girlfriend or boyfriend. And then we tell them about how a vegan diet works, and they get pumped up about it. And we say, would you like to then give it a try and maybe test drive a vegan diet? And the answer is going to be yes in most cases. So then you refer them to a weekly session where you say for the next three weeks, four weeks, 20 weeks, whatever you choose, you're going to get, get a chance to do it. Have them be in a group of 15 to 20 people. If it's too few, if it's like five or six, they feel like they're under the microscope. If it's more than 20, they're going to get lost. Uh, so 15 to 20 is a good number. And we use a listserv so that people can share recipes and their experiences between groups. We give them these keys to success. We ask them to not worry about the long term, just focus on the short term. And we say, don't set a foot wrong. Don't even think about a slip. We're in this group because we are going to try a vegan diet. That's what we're here for. If they don't want to try it, they're not in the group. And we ask them to attend every session. And when they do that, we're going to go around the room, and one by one, they're going to share their successes. They're, they'll share their questions and challenges. And then the group works together to solve them. They get very engaged in it. They support each other. And every week when they come in, they get on the scale in a private place. Uh, and uh, nobody's looking over their shoulder. But they want to know if they're losing weight week by week. And we always say, if you have a problem, give us a call. We'll help you solve it. Now, when we do the weekly groups, here's how we do them, and here's how you can do them. Um, we start out, it, each group is just an hour. We start out going around the room, and each person discusses their successes and challenges, as I mentioned. Then we'll give them about 15 minutes of some kind of instruction, which could be a live talk or a video or maybe a little cooking demonstration. We'll show uh, simple cooking techniques. We'll also show some products if they've never tasted almond milk. Well, we'll bring it, and we'll pass around little cups, and they can test it out. We show them other things that they can buy. And at least one point in the group, we're going to go to a grocery store. And we ask them to walk around in groups of five or six, not with their grocery carts that are going to clog up the aisle, but just walk around, and you show them what to favor in the produce aisle, what to favor in the bean aisle, what to favor in the aisle where they can get veggie dogs, and that kind of thing. 
it's a real eye-opener for them. Now, we have a curriculum that you can use if you'd like. If you go to our website, pcrm.org, you'll see a tab that says For Physicians. There is a curriculum that includes videos that you can stream live, or if you want a DVD, that's available for purchase. But the curriculum is free. Put it to work in your practice, okay? So, when people begin a healthy diet, what I always say to them is, don't change your diet today. You're not ready. Take a little time and get ready for it, okay? So, first, just check out the possibilities. What I mean by that is, you need to think of a breakfast that you would like to eat that has no animal products. You need to think about a lunch and a dinner and a snack. So I give them this kind of a page. And I give them an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper. And I say, go home and think of breakfast, lunches, dinners, and snacks that have no animal products that you actually like. Experiment. Try some things. And I'll say, here are some recipes to try. Or here are some food ideas like oatmeal with cinnamon and raisins, blueberry pancakes, cold cereal with almond milk, maybe tofu scramblers. Simple things. Then the same with lunch and dinner. We give them some ideas, a vegetable chili, a stir-fry, a bean and vegetable burrito, veggie pizza, simple things. And what if they're going out to eat? Here are some ideas at an Italian restaurant, maybe a pasta in fagiole or minestrone soup, spaghetti marinara. If you're at a Mexican restaurant, beans and rice, veggie fajitas, bean burrito. Chinese restaurants, rice, vegetables, tofu dishes. You're just thinking through with them places they might eat things they might have at home. So at a Japanese restaurant, they can have rice dishes, edamame, veggie sushi, all kinds of salads. What if they're at a submarine sandwich place? Have the veggie delight. Skip the meat and cheese. Have the lettuce and tomato and onions and olives and cucumbers and spinach and red wine vinegar and they'll toast it for you. Now Taco Bell is not necessarily the pinnacle of culinary art, but they'll make you a bean burrito. Hold the cheese. Turns out to be vegan. Okay? so. After a week, they come back. The patient said, I'm ready. I found vegan things that I can eat at every meal. Now, we're going to do a test run. I say three weeks, but it could be four, it could be eight, it could be whatever you want. And so tomorrow morning, the patients know they're going to do it all vegan all the time. They're not going to try. They're not going to do their best. They are going to do it 100%. And if they want, an, uh, as an option, to use transitional foods like veggie sausage instead of meat sausage, they can use those too. We've got lots of resources for you. These are some of my books on diabetes, on weight loss, a recipe book, and my new book on power foods for the brain, uh, which deals with preventing Alzheimer's disease. But there are many, many other good books by people like Colin Campbell, Dean Ornish, John McDougall, Caldwell Esselstyn and Rip Esselstyn, John Robbins, and many, many others. We have a free online program that is for uh, individuals from everyday life, but a lot of doctors and dietitians use it for their patients. You go to pcrm.org, put in your email address, and every day you get an email from Alicia Silverstone or some other celebrity who says, here are some menus and recipes and cooking videos. We have a free app. The Kickstart program is free. It's in English, Spanish, Mandarin. We also have one for people from India and a new Japanese program. So it's all at pcrm.org. For any uh, caregivers in the uh, audience right now, I want to mention to you about the International Conference on Diabetes. It's coming up here in Washington, July 18th and 19th. Right when Washington is at its most sweltering, I want you to come join us. You'll enjoy it. Finally, the PCRM Clinic is opening this fall. 
And if you'd like to come visit us, it's a primary care clinic, but we're focusing on those conditions where nutrition makes a big difference. We'd love to see you here in our offices uh, this fall. So that's all I've got, and I'd be glad to uh, open it up for discussion. Thank you for uh, listening to my presentation. All right, okay. So the first question says, does coconut oil have negative effects, like increasing insulin resistance as other saturated fats do? So far as we know, the answer is yes. Now, some people say, well, saturated fats are bad, and, and they are bad, but they want to make an exception for coconut oil. They will say, well, it's different. It has health benefits. From my read of the literature, we don't yet have enough knowledge to know that that's the case. So I think it, it's useful to err on the side of caution and treat coconut oil just like every other saturated fat. Okay, the next question, does weight loss play a significant role in the prevention and treatment of type, is type 2 diabetes? Yes, type 2. Uh, it sure does. Um, but keep in mind, um, weight comes from what we eat. So if we are eating in a healthy way, it's the foods that can cause the diabetes and it's the foods, uh, the foods, healthy foods, will help us to reverse it. And for many people, their diabetes gets better even before they're losing a lot of weight. So what I'm trying to say is that healthy foods will cause weight loss, partly as a result of that weight loss, but partly as just as, as a result of the foods themselves, a healthy plant-based diet causes diabetes to improve. Okay, I've got hypoglycemia and a sweet tooth. What's the best sweetener to use? Is agave okay or is it stevia? Uh, dates? You can, you can really use any of these. I would encourage you to use uh, the glycemic index, which is a healthy uh, tool devised in 1981 by Dr. David Jenkins. And it simply separates those foods that cause your blood sugar to rise really quickly from those that cause it to rise more gently. So as an example, white bread causes a pretty rapid spike in blood sugar. Rye bread is more gentle on your blood sugar, or pumpernickel even more so. So those are better choices for you. Instead of white baking potatoes, you might have sweet potatoes. It's more gentle on your blood sugar. If you're favoring those foods, you'll discover your hypoglycemia is likely to get a lot better. And frankly, any of the sweeteners that you mentioned are perfectly fine, including dates um, and fruit sugar seem to be okay. All right, uh, in the case of diabetes, since fat gums up the cells, what is more harmful, sugar or fat? Well, neither one is exactly health food. But our goal here, if we want to reverse diabetes, is to get the fat out of the cells. So we use a vegan diet because a vegan diet has no animal fat. It has an extra benefit, it has no animal protein. And animal protein tends to be harder on the kidneys compared to plant protein. So you don't want to eat animal products if you got diabetes. We go a step further, we keep oils really, really low. So you don't take that bottle of olive oil and go glug, 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 glug all over your salad, don't do that. We want to use non-oil cooking techniques and non-oil products. This is not a zero-fat diet, though, because vegetables and beans and even fruits have traces of natural oils in the food, and that's what the body really needs. Now, sugar, sugar is a little bit of a whipping boy. By that, I mean uh, table sugar is not really healthy, but it is blamed for all kinds of things when people should actually be blaming something else. Carbohydrates, including sugar, have only four calories per gram. Fats have nine calories per gram. And I think sometimes people focus on sugar when they should be focusing on meat and cheese, the really problem foods. 
And I think that sugar is sometimes a whipping boy. People are blaming it because they don't want to face these, these more serious problems. Okay, so get away from meat, get away from cheese, and then third up, it's a good idea to get away from sugar too or limit it. If it's natural fruit sugars, don't worry about them. That's your body is designed for that. Okay, can you please explain how fats and proteins can both influence insulin and why plant carbs are helpful? Okay, great question. Um, as I mentioned in my diagram, fat gets into the muscle cells, and when it's in there, it gums up insulin's ability to allow sugar to get in the cell. The more fat builds up, the harder time sugar has to get in the cell. When you get the fat out of your diet, the fat drains out of the muscle cells, and the sugar can now get in. Now, protein is an interesting thing. Protein triggers insulin release. Now, that might surprise you. You're probably familiar with carbohydrate and sugars triggering the release of insulin. That's true. When I eat a piece of bread or other starchy food, the carbohydrate in them causes my body to make more insulin. True enough. But protein does that tr as well. And Atkins enthusiasts have sometimes said, well, or you'll hear people say, uh, talk, following other kinds of fad diets, they'll say, don't eat carbohydrates. Carbohydrates causes insu cause insulin release. Well, so does protein. And in fact, if you're eating fish or chicken or beef or eggs, they cause quite a significant release of insulin in your blood. All right. So getting away from carbs is not magic. You should actually be eating more carbs than you are now, probably. All right. Can you please explain? Oh, I'm sorry. I tackled that one. Um, I have heard that Alzheimer's is being considered another form of diabetes. Your thoughts? I wrote a book called Power Foods for the Brain that I might suggest you take a look at. Because what we found uh, is that researchers looking at Alzheimer's disease showed that the very same foods that seem to cause diabetes, I'm talking about fatty foods, particularly foods high in saturated fat, those same diets also are associated with Alzheimer's disease. If you've got a diet high in saturated fat, you're set up for diabetes, you're also set up for Alzheimer's. And researchers have also shown that people who have diabetes have about double the risk of Alzheimer's compared to other people. What we think is going on is that the high levels of sugar in the blood, which is the hallmark of diabetes, that that might actually be damaging the brain over time. But it could also be that as diabetes attacks the blood vessels, that that's hurting the brain too, just like it hurts the heart and hurts the kidneys. But once again, the key is really think about those bad fats. It's coming up the cells causing diabetes, but saturated fat, bacon grease, chicken fat, that saturated fat increases the risk of diabetes. In the Chicago Health and Aging pro, uh, Project, about 6,000 people were studied, and those who ate the most saturated fat had about three times the risk of diabetes compared to other people. And let me just mention, you might have seen some news reports lately trying to say saturated fat isn't as bad as you thought. Have you seen those news reports? These are people saying, when we run the statistics again, it doesn't look so bad. What they're talking about is a statistical technique called meta-analysis, where you combine all the studies together in a big pot, and you try to see what statistics come out from them. The pro now, that's a useful method in certain ways, and we do meta-analyses here, too, at the Physicians Committee. But what you have to understand is that when you do that approach, you're taking good studies, throwing them in your statistical pot, and you're taking bad studies and throwing them in, too. And what you get as a result is sort of this average effect of the best and the worst. And real effects 
can be made to disappear. So saturated fat, bacon grease, cheese fat is every bit as bad as we thought it was. It's bad for your heart. It's bad for your brain. Okay. Because type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease, can you relate diet changes to other autoimmune dis uh, disorders? Yes. Um, rheumatoid arthritis is a classic example. Your body is making antibodies to something. And those antibodies are little protein torpedoes that are trying to attack bacteria or viruses. That's what they're for. But instead, what they're doing is they're attacking the lining of your joints. And that's arthritis. Well, what is triggering the uh, antibodies to form? It's some kind of foreign protein in your body. And the most common culprit is dairy protein. Get away from dairy and see if your autoimmune condition doesn't get better. It's not the only one. For somebody else, it might be egg protein, might be meat protein, or it could even be something like citrus fruits or tomatoes or maybe eggplant or something like that. And in my book, Foods That Fight Pain, I talk about this approach for trying to tackle autoimmune conditions. All right. Can foot, oh, I'm sorry. Can foot nerve damage caused by type 2 diabetes be reversed with diet and exercise? Um, in the study that we did 10 years ago for the National Institutes of Health, I had one man who had had diabetes for 19 years, had terrible pain in his feet. This is neuropathy. The nerves are being attacked by the disease. After about four or five months on a vegan diet, his neuropathy completely went away. And I was stunned by that because I'd never seen that before. So we began doing a study just on neuropathy. And the study is ongoing. So I can't give you the, the final results. But I can tell you that for a great many people, following a low-fat vegan diet, even without adding exercise, they do seem to be, see major improvements in their neuropathy. And frankly, we don't have anything else. There are medications for neuropathy, and they are extremely weak and very unsatisfactory. So if somebody has diabetes, I would not give them any other diet, low-fat vegan diet. That will probably help with their neuropathy. It will help protect their eyes. You know it's going to protect your heart. You don't want these people to eat one drop of cholesterol or animal fat because their blood vessels are being assaulted by this condition. So get them on a healthy diet. It'll help their diabetes. It'll probably help their neuropathy. Okay, if fresh fruit is included when making fresh juices, what effect will the fructose have on insulin? Well, any kind of sugar that you're consuming, including fructose, is going to raise your blood sugars a little bit, and insulin will respond, helping you to get those sugar in the, that sugar in the blood. Uh, that sugar out of the blood into the cells of the body. That's normal. So if you're eating fruit, that's a normal and good thing to, to do. Now, the first few days when a person with diabetes goes on a vegan diet, their blood sugar might rise a little bit. And the reason is they have tremendous insulin resistance. And so the sugars that they're eating, including natural sugars, are having a little bit of trouble getting into the cells. But within a few days on a plant-based diet, their insulin sensitivity will get better and better and better, and their blood sugars are going to start to fall. So fresh fruit is fine. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Uh, you can have it as a juice, but you're, better, you're somewhat better off having them as, as the whole fruit. It'll, it enters your blood sugar, your, your uh, bloodstream a little bit more gently. All right. Can a low-calorie ketogenic diet be used for someone with type 2 diabetes to assist in fat loss? No, I would not do it. Um, you can do it. I mean, this was the approach that Atkins he said, you know, your body runs on glucose, so don't need any glucose, and you'll starve, basically starve yourself. And people do lose, lose weight that way. Since they're not eating any sugar or any carbohydrate at all, pretty much, their blood sugars do drop. 
but that's a temporary phenomenon. Sugar is your natural fuel. And if you look at Atkins dieters after a while, virtually all of them fail over the long run. So I wouldn't go there, particularly since if you take carbs out of your diet, what are you left with? You're left with fat, which is bad for your heart, bad for your brain. In fact, about a third of Atkins dieters have a big rise in blood cholesterol as a result of that high fat diet. You're also left with protein and animal protein appears to be hard on the kidneys. So I wouldn't go there. All right. Um, as a nurse passionate about health, how do I encourage the community to wake up to healing foods? Oh, good heavens. Well, first of all, bless your heart. Um, we need more nurses like you. Um, and I'm delighted that you're doing this. Um, I would make as much noise as you possibly can. If you're working in a clinic, uh, you might want to use our curriculum. Uh, what medical clinics do is at 5 o'clock, everybody goes home. But at 5.01, our team goes in, opens the door, turns on the lights. We put the waiting room chairs in a circle, and the patients with diabetes come in. And you can teach them. They will love you for it. So you can use our curriculum. You'll make a huge difference. When you do that, if you want to ask somebody from the local newspaper to sit in, talk about the experience, learn about it, write letters to the editor, talk to the local TV show, do a little cooking demonstration for them, make some noise. It's, you're getting a great message out. How effective is it to take cinnamon, um, a cinnamon supplement capsule before a meal to help regulate glucose levels? Well, you can take cinnamon. It doesn't have to be a capsule. It can be cinnamon from the spice rack and about a half a teaspoon does seem to, in controlled studies, does lower blood sugar a little bit. Um, but the key is what you put the cinnamon on. Uh, you want to put it on your oatmeal or your pancakes. In other words, you want to put it on a vegan meal. Um, the combination there is what you're really looking for. Um, how does the consumption of dates affect blood sugar? I have read conflict, conflicting opinions. Well, dates um, do have some natural sugar in it, and so they will cause your blood sugar to rise a little bit, but not dramatically so. And it's a, dates are a good dessert food. I think it's perfectly fine. Don't worry about your blood sugar going up a little bit. That's normal physiology. After a meal, your blood sugar should rise a little bit. What's healthy is that it doesn't rise a lot and it comes back down promptly. That's normal physiology. Okay, time for just a couple more. Uh, what is the role of IGF-1, like from isolated soy, whoops, okay, uh, isolated soy protein and insulin resistance. I, I think the, the question here might be a little bit confused. Um, IGF-1 is insulin-like growth factor, and it's not in soy protein. Um, uh, IGF-1 is something that's made in your body. And when people consume cow's milk products, this is the classic case, when a person consumes cow's milk, the combination of sugar and protein in the cow's milk causes the calf to make more IGF-1, and that it's, it's a growth factor, so the calf grows. Now, if you as a human drink cow's milk, your IGF-1 level is going to rise too. And uh, when you're an adult, you don't want a high IGF-1 level because you're not growing anymore. And what's going to grow are cancer cells. That's why cow's milk is, is strongly associated with prostate cancer in research studies, or at least that's what we believe is going on. Now, some people have shown that you can simulate this effect with any high sugar, um, high protein food. Soy milk might do that. Uh, possibly. We haven't yet shown any link between soy, soy milk and soy and cancer at all. Cow's milk products are associated with a higher level of prostate cancer. Soy products are associated with a lower level of cancer. 
No one knows entirely why that is, but that's an important thing to emphasize. Because a lot of people have this exactly wrong. They say, well, soy has isoflavones in them, and they look kind of like estrogens, and they call them plant estrogens. And so that ought to cause breast cancer, but it turns out not to be the case. We have about eight studies showing that young women who consume the most soy have about a 30% reduction in their risk of getting breast cancer. And we have three large studies of about 10,000 women, all with cancer in the past. Those who consume the most soy products have about a 30% reduction in dying of breast cancer compared to those who avoid soy. So avoiding soy does you no good. Um, now, having said that, you don't have to have soy. It's totally optional. Um, uh, it's very versatile food, but it does not cause cancer so far. We haven't seen any evidence. If anything, it, it helps prevent cancer. Okay. Um, does our body need pure sugar at all? No, it doesn't. Um, have This person has been sugar-free without fruit for two months and feels great. Okay. Um, you don't need um, pure sugar at all. But fruit sugars are not bad. If you're eating an apple or an orange or a pear, you're getting healthy fruit sugars that you as a primate are designed to eat. Okay, so those are natural food for people. They don't spike your blood sugar in any abnormal way. They're perfectly good. But if you feel okay without them, you don't have to eat them either. But I would encourage you to eat vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans. Uh, what are your thoughts on carbs in the form of whole grain muffins, cakes, better to avoid? No, they're okay. Um, keep in mind that the countries that follow traditionally high carbohydrate diets, like Japan and China, are slim and healthy. And once meats invade, Western foods invade, and carbohydrate intake goes down, well, that's when the problems start. Now, it's better to have whole grains rather than refined grains. But even refined grains like rye bread and pumpernickel bread, this is not poison. I wouldn't worry about it really so much. Okay, are there any good news? Uh, stories with respect to type 1 diabetes? Yes, um, we've seen many, many people with type 1 diabetes improve. Uh, the, di the diabetes is not going to go away if it's type 1. You'll always need a source of insulin. But what you can do is using a low-fat vegan diet, your need for insulin will diminish, and your likelihood of ever having complications like eye problems or kidney problems or heart problems diminishes dramatically as well. Okay, um, I see it's about uh, just two minutes before the top of the hour. How about if I take one or two more quick questions? Okay, what do you think of the commercial vegan dairy substitutes like vegan butter, vegan cheeses, and mayo? Um, I think used in small amounts, you're probably okay with them, but you know, most of the vegan cheeses are kind of like glue. They don't taste particularly good and they're really quite high in fat. Uh, now, technology is moving on and they're getting to be more and more of them that are really quite good. Um, so, read the label. If a serving has only two or three uh, grams of fat, perfect. I wouldn't worry about it. I think they're probably okay. But generally speaking, the more natural a food is, the better it's going to be for you. Okay, what sort of direction do you give your patients in regard to oil? What I encourage them to do is to learn non-oil cooking techniques. So instead of dumping oil in their pan or taking that Pam spray and going all over the pan, you know, causing a tsunami of oil, learn how to, you can uh, saute onions or garlic or mushrooms in a dry pan or in wine or vegetable broth or even water. You can learn these non-oil cooking techniques. This is especially important for a person with diabetes or weight problems where we want to get the fat out of the diet. That'll make a big difference for them. All right. Well, thank you. I hope you found this useful.